So starting in Matthew 28, reading verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we'll be reading verses 23 through 28. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret... Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. The word of the Lord. All right. So we are continuing through our sermon series here in November. November is Missions Month. And uh, we are uh, continuing on in that. The first week, we looked at connecting with God, with the God of the mission. Pastor Johnny uh, led us through some key texts. Uh, we're going to come back to one of those texts today. And then uh, Ryan Hanna, our missionary from Thailand, uh, talked to us about connecting with God uh, through the mission of the global church, and he helped us see all that God is doing more broadly uh, in the global church. Today, we're connecting with God through the mission of the local church. So we're going to zoom in a little bit, and that's my uh, privilege to get to talk about and preach about this morning, is how God works uh, through the local church. And one of the major themes that we've been chasing throughout the sermon series is, is this idea of connecting with God. So we don't want it to be just Here's some things to learn about the global church. Here's some things to learn about the mission of God. But it's how do we connect with God in these things? So my burden this morning and the thing that I've been praying for for you all is that you would learn how to or see how to or hear the Spirit's call upon your life of connecting with God through the mission of the local church. Not just connecting with the mission of the local church, but connecting with God through the mission of the local church? What would it look like for you to connect with God by partnering with Calvary in our mission? All right, so key to understanding uh, this connection with God in Calvary's mission is to understand that Calvary, like every local church, has a dual focus to our singular mission. So we have a single mission, but we have a dual focus to this singular mission. And knowing what this singular mission is and the dual focus of it and how you fit into it is going to be important uh, for the point of this sermon. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Matthew 28, which has already been read for us. Pastor Johnny uh, uh, mentioned this. It was one of his texts from our first sermon. 
And it's a key important text for missions. So we're going to go back and start there, look briefly there. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 28, where the Apostle Paul, if you were listening, as it was read for us today by Amy, uh, he's talking about tongues and prophecy. And you're thinking, I don't, what does that have to do? We're going to see what that has to do uh, with the mission of the church. And then finally, I'm going to close by giving uh, you one very simple, straightforward way that you can connect with God by participating in this dual uh, focused mission of the church. All right, so Matthew 28. Let's turn there, if you still have your finger there, but turn back to Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20 to bring you up to speed on what's going on in uh, this passage, uh, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. If you've been around church for a while, you probably have heard this text read, but this is the end of Jesus's life. He has, uh, he's, he's lived his life, he's taught, he's died, uh, he's risen from the dead. He's called his disciples together. He's told them that he's going away and he's coming back. And what we have here at the end of Matthew's gospel is what he wants his people, his church, his disciples to be doing while he's gone and they're waiting for him to come back. And this is what he says, his last words in Matthew's gospel. Go therefore, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you want to know what is the mission of the church, we don't have to make that up. The elders don't all get together and decide what is going to be our mission. Like Jesus has already given us our mission. This is it right here. This is the singular mission. It's to make disciples. That's what our job is, right? As a local church, our job is to make disciples. But there's a dual focus to this mission. Do you see that? There's baptizing, and then there's teaching. So the two components of the mission that Jesus has given. Baptizing has a bit of an outward focus to it, and teaching has an inward focus to it. It's going to be helpful for us to remember. Sometimes we can lose sight of this, but it's helpful for us to remember that baptism in the New Testament is universally understood throughout the New Testament as a converting rite. So when we see go into all the nations and baptize, that's the same as Jesus saying, go out into all the nations and convert those who aren't Christians into becoming Christians. Maybe you remember in Acts 2, if you've ever read in Acts 2, as the disciples got busy doing the thing that Jesus had just said, Peter stood up and he preached the gospel. And then there were many there who were not believers in Jesus at that point, but they were cut to the heart, uh, Acts 2 says. And they, they wanted to respond to what Peter had proclaimed about the message of Jesus. And they said, they said, what should we do? We're cut to the heart. What should we do? And do you remember Peter's response? He says, repent and be baptized. Right? In other words, repent and become a Christian. Be baptized. Right? So the baptism all throughout the New Testament is an invitation into the family of God. It's a converting rite throughout the book of Acts. But then once one has been baptized, you're not done. Right? That's the, that's, the, that's the outward focus, right? You've, you've brought someone on the outside in, but now that you've done that, you spend the rest of your life as a convert learning and growing in, in your understanding and your obedience to Jesus' teaching. So go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them, right? So now we've brought them from the outside in. And then, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
So there's an outward component, and then there's an inward component. Just as physical breathing involves inhaling and exhaling, right, breathing out and breathing in, so too the mission of the church includes both inhaling and exhaling, reaching out and reaching in. In physical breathing, if you only inhale or you only exhale, what happens to you? You die, right? That's what happens to you. It's pretty much the same way in the life of a local church. If a local church only inhales, right, they only care for themselves, they only do the teaching to the body, right, and they don't do any outreach, that church will become unhealthy, and if it persists in that, will eventually die. It's the same way, though, if a church only focuses on evangelism. That's all they do. They never do any teaching to the congregation. They never help the congregation grow in their understanding about the, the need to walk in the Lord and faithfulness to Jesus' commands, right? If they only do evangelism, eventually the church becomes unhealthy, and it, it, sooner or later, it's actually not even a church anymore. It becomes something other than a church. A church thrives when it engages meaningfully in both directions, inward and outward. Now, some of you I know are more gifted at the outward movement. You're the exhalers of our congregation, right? You're good at evangelism and outreach and connecting with people that are outside the Christian community. Others of you are better equipped or are more prone uh, for the inward movement, the inhalers uh, of the church's mission, right? You're better at teaching and, and nurturing faith and, and counseling uh, Christians about how to walk uh, in a way of wisdom in the Lord. And it's fine. As individual congregants, we don't all need to be equally adept in both directions, but collectively, as a church, we do need to be engaged in both directions. All right. So the punchline here from this just little look at Matthew 28 is that we as a church need to have both an inward and an outward focus. That's the dual focus nature of our singular mission. Okay, so yes, you say. I agree with that. But you might be wondering, but which is more important? Like, where should we spend the bulk of our energy and time? I mean, I get that we should be doing both, but is one, like, the point of the spear? Or is one the thing that we really should be focusing on? This is the debate that happens a lot within uh, pastoral circles about where you should focus your attention as a church. Some say one, some say the other. Well, we're going to go to our second passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 23. So turn there, uh, if you're not there already, to see if we can get some clarity about the relationship between the inward and outward focus of the local church. How these two, uh, uh, these two directions, these two movements of the singular mission relate to each other, and then how we're supposed to prioritize them. All right, so 1 Corinthians 14, we're jumping in actually in 1 Corinthians 14 into the middle of a conversation that's going on between Paul and the church in Corinth. And we're not going to understand the point that I'm going to try to draw from this passage if we don't understand what's been going on. So let me just give you a little bit of a, a, a running start to get you up to speed with what's been happening. The church in Corinth uh, was preoccupied with spiritual gifts. And by spiritual gifts, meaning uh, gifts or abilities, supernatural abilities that had come upon the church in Corinth 
and, it, and this is true kind of more broadly, but in particular in the church of Corinth, had come upon the church in Corinth that gave them the capacity to do things, prophesy uh, in the spirit, uh, heal in the spirit, have gifts of knowledge in the spirit. One of the gifts that they had was the ability to speak in tongues in the spirit. So let me just say a brief word about tongues so you understand what's going on. If you've ever, uh, as a Christian, if you've ever been part of a church that speaks in tongues, or if you aren't part of a church that speaks in tongues, but you've visited a church that speaks in tongues, you, you, might, you might find that that's unsettling. If you're not a Christian, you have no idea what we're talking about right now anyway, so I've got to tell you just a little bit about it. All right. But in Acts, when the Holy Spirit came down upon the, uh, the earliest Christians, the Holy Spirit came down and gave the capacity for the early Christians to speak in tongues, just another word for languages, to speak in tongues or languages that they didn't already know. And there were a lot of folks that had gathered in, in Jerusalem at this time of the year. And so you had people from all over the Roman Empire who spoke different languages. And here, the apostles and the uh, early disciples could speak or proclaim the word of God in languages that they themselves didn't even know because it was a, a spirit-empowered ability. Right? So from that point on, this gift of tongues was present in the church. And when the Spirit of God would come, they would often speak in these languages. Now, now some people think that the languages that were spoken were angelic languages. Some that, that think that it was only the kind of natural languages of the, of the Greco-Roman world. Whatever the case, the capacity to speak in tongues was a gift given by the Spirit to speak in some language that, you didn't, that the speaker didn't already uh, know ahead of time. So the church in Corinth had a lot of uh, emphasis on this gift of tongues. And the Apostle Paul, part of what he's been writing now for a, a, quite a bit, a chapter or more, is he's critiquing the Corinthians about how they had come pre, become preoccupied with this gift of tongues. You're getting all obsessed about this gift of tongues, Paul is saying. That's not the thing that you really should be focused on. He tells them back in 13 that you should be focusing on love, and that's the thing you should be focusing on. But he's going to be now comparing, he's going to now be comparing the relationship between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy is, we can think of prophecy as like uh, foretelling about the future. Right, that the Spirit gives me the capacity to say things that are going to come true in the future. That was part of the gift of prophecy. Part of the gift of prophecy, although, uh, was not just foretelling about the future, but it was also speaking about the realities of the present. So a bit more like what we think of preaching. And so Paul seems to have in mind this comparison between this supernatural capacity to speak in foreign languages and this supernatural capacity to speak in the vernacular or the common language about the message that God had given. And he's saying, which of these is more important? Right? This is the conversation that he's having uh, with the Corinthians. And he is saying to them that the gift of prophecy is more important than the gift of tongues. Paul affirms the capacity to speak in tongues. He himself, he says, speaks in tongues. But he values much more the gift of prophecy because you're speaking in a way that is clear to those around you. So let me just read a few of the things he says previous to our passage. You can find this in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. Kind of captures the essence of what he's saying. He says, pursue love. That's the most important thing. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are good. But especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building and upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want all you to speak in tongues. I mean, that's great, Paul is saying, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless, of course, someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And Paul is talking there about someone, if you speak in tongues, you speak some language that you don't know and that no one else around you knows. But if I have the capacity, the spiritual capacity to interpret, or maybe I know that language, I can interpret what you have just said. And so now Paul's saying, if, if there's an interpreter with your tongue, then it makes sense to speak in tongues. But if there's not, it really actually doesn't help anyone. It's you talking to God in some language that you don't understand and that, that no one else around you understands. Then look what he says here in verse 13. Or actually, we'll jump to 15. Uh, what am I to do then? I will pray with my spirit, and, but I will pray uh, with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks in your spirit, now he's in your spirit, he's talking about tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak tongues in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So his point is, to sum it all up and to get to the heart of it is that tongues edify the Christian, but prophecy edifies the congregation. Right? So tongues, Paul's not knocking tongues, but he says that that's just between you and the Lord. When you gather together as a congregation, prophecy or speaking words intelligibly is the thing that's more important. So then he takes this basic insight about tongues and prophecy and the point uh, of both, and he proves the point that he's making about the superiority of prophecy by comparing it or like working it out, as it were, uh, in the congregational life. And he does this now. Now we're getting to finally to our text here in verse 23. And uh, he's going to prove it by applying it to both unbelievers and believers. All right, to make his point, he's going to apply it to unbelievers and believers. All right, so first he talks about uh, the issue of tongues and prophecy from the vantage point of unbelievers. So look at verses 23 through 25. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your mind? Now, this is what happened in Acts. When the Holy Spirit came and the disciples and the, began to speak in all these foreign languages, the folks around didn't actually say you're out of your mind. They said you're drunk. Right? It didn't make any sense to them what was going on because they, they couldn't understand any of it. Right? And Paul is saying that's what's going to happen if you all get together and you start speaking in tongues and some outsider or unbeliever walks in, he's going to be like, this place is weird. Like, what is going on? Right? He's not going to be blessed. But, verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, listen to this now, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All right, so the unbeliever isn't benefited 
by the people speaking in tongues, by the congregation speaking in tongues. It's only going to confuse him and make him think that you're crazy, Paul is saying. Better for the non-Christian if he hears words of prophecy, because the secrets of his heart are disclosed. That's what the gospel does, right? The gospel comes in and like reveals the secrets of our heart, things that we didn't even know that, about ourselves that now we know. And the result is that we fall down, the unbeliever falls down, which is a posture of sur surrender, right? And then ends up worshiping God. Okay, so, the, so what the outsider needs is a clear articulation of who God is and how God intersects with or impacts the life of the unbeliever. In other words, the unbeliever needs to hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed in such a way that the unbeliever becomes a believing worshiper of God. Then Paul takes this same issue of tongues and prophecy, and he proves the point again from the vantage point, or he applies it to believers. So look at verse 26 through 29. So then what then, brothers, he says in verse 26, when you come together, so now he's talking like when you come together as a worshiping congregation, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only one or two, at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one, then, uh, each one of them keep silence in the church and speak to himself and to God. Then he finishes up in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So Paul is then essentially saying here, we kind of try to sum it up, he's saying, when you come together and you're worshiping, you're singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, it says, let two or three prophets speak. And you can let people speak in tongues if there's someone there to interpret. But if no one's there to interpret, don't let anyone speak in tongues because it just confuses people. But his concern here, look what he says then in verse 26, his concern ultimately in all of this is that everything be done, he says, verse 26, let all things be done for the building up. That's what he wants for the Christian community, that whatever is happening in the worship service is done for the building up. What he means by this building up, you can go back up into verse 16. I think he's specifically talking about the context of worship. When you come together for the worship service, what happens in the worship service should be uh, done for the building up of the congregation to move them into a posture of worship. All right, so bringing this together, Paul is saying that the worship service in Corinth, and then by extension, of course, uh, in ours, should be structured such that both non-believers and believers encounter the message of God in an intelligible way that they are brought to a posture of authentic worship. That's what Paul is ultimately concerned about here, that both Non-believers and believers hear the message of God in an intelligible way such that they are brought to a posture of worship. And here's the point that I want us to see in this. There is not one gospel message for non-believers that will bring them to worship and another gospel message for believers that bring them to worship. There is only one gospel message that brings all people together to worship. The same gospel message that converts unbelievers into a posture of worship 
is the same gospel message that compels believers to enter into a posture of worship. Or again, the message that converts us is the same message that grows and matures us. If I had to come up with one sentence that captures the essence of the Christian faith, and in fact, I did have to come up with one sentence, and here it is for this sermon. If I had to come up with one sentence, I think it might be something like this. Human creatures can only flourish when they dwell in a loving, saving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Human creatures, we're creatures. That's an important word, right? We can only flourish. Only is an important word in there. We can flourish is what the gospel does in us. When we dwell, we have to be in relationship in a loving, saving, we have to be saved, relationship with God, the creator, through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent into the world to save us. That one sentence, we need to unpack that and fill it out, but it pretty much gets to the heart of the message of the Bible from first to last. Human creatures can only flourish when they dwell in a loving, saving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is just as true for Christians as it is for non-Christians. So much of the debate about where the church should put its efforts, outreach or inreach, is too often working from the wrong assumption that Christians and non-Christians need different gospel messages. We've got to kind of divide up our, our focus, as it were, because we've got two different messages, and we have to spend time with this message and spend time with this message, and, and you know, how much time should you give to each? There's one message. There's one gospel message that is proclaimed in the worshiping community. And that one gospel message brings believers into a posture of worship, and that one gospel message brings non-believers into a posture of worship. We don't need to choose between these two things. We are all human beings, Christian, non-Christian. We are all human beings, and we all need the same things. We need food, we need drink, and we need God. All of us equally need God. We all need to find our hope and joy in life by living in faithful dependence upon God through his son, Jesus Christ. The single message of hope found in Jesus Christ is what every human heart needs to hear and believe and then be reminded of and taught for the rest of his or her life. All right, so let me see if I can bring this all together to get to your one point of application that I told you uh, was coming. You and I, a lot of times when I'm talking and preaching, I talk about us, and I put myself in there with you. This one, I'm going to separate myself out from you uh, as your pastor. But you, as a congregant, me as a pastor, we each have a role to play here and put maybe the staff on my side here as well. We each have a role to play in Calvary's mission. On the staff side of it, our job is to put together worship services and weekly ministries where the gospel is proclaimed in such a way that it ministers to your life and leads you into a place of flourishing that God promises through his son. 
And we very much intend these ministries that we're putting together and our services that we're putting together to be equal opportunity for both Christians and non-Christians. Right? So we don't think, okay, this is for Christians, this is for non-Christians. A little bit we do that. But for the most part, it's the same gospel message. Right? How do we minister the gospel to our congregation? And that it can include, at times, those who are not Christians. We all need the same thing. But here's the thing. By God's grace, I and the staff can put together a worship service or other weekly ministers, ministries where the gospel is proclaimed. But here's what neither I nor the staff can do. We can't engage in the outward focus of the church's mission without your help, you as congregants. We cannot breathe out effectively independent of your partnership. We can't create something cool enough or trendy enough or compelling enough that will draw unchurched people into this space to hear the gospel proclaimed. Now, I'm a pretty charming person, as you all know. <laughs> but non-Christians, left to themselves, are not going to wreck their Sunday mornings to come hear me talk for 35 minutes. Just isn't going to happen. Take a moment and think. Just put yourself in this situation here. I mean, now I'm talking to my devout Christian congregants. Think about this. What would compel you as a devout Christian to visit a synagogue or a mosque? What would compel you as a devout, committed Christian to visit a synagogue or a mosque? Take a moment and think about that. If you're a committed Christian, you very likely have no interest or inclination in visiting the worship service of another religion. It never enters your mind. Like last night, you were not sitting around with your friends or your spouse thinking, what should we do tonight? Watch a movie. We could go to synagogue. What should we do? You know, it just probably didn't happen, right? It just didn't enter your mind. If there is any chance that you went to synagogue last night, it was almost certainly because you are friends with a Jewish person, and they invited you, and so out of respect and appreciation for that friendship, you went to synagogue last night. Maybe not even then you would go, but maybe. If you went last night, that would probably explain 96% of the people that went to synagogue last night as a devout Christian. Now listen, you're devoutedly secular. In other words, they are devout to their secularism as you are devout to your Christianity. Your devoutedly secular, non-religious, non-Christian friends are as likely to show up here in church on their own on a Sunday morning as you are, as a devout Christian, are likely to show up in a mosque or a synagogue which is to say it's not very likely. If there's even a slight chance that non-religious folks might come to Calvary and hear the gospel proclaimed, it will be because they're invited by a friend. That will be why they come into the walls of this church to hear the gospel proclaimed. Paul assumes in 1 Corinthians, the whole context in Corinth, he assumes that non-Christians are present in the worshiping life of the church of Corinth. How did it happen that there were non-Christians present? Well, Paul doesn't say it explicitly, but 
It's not too hard to figure out. The earliest congregations met in homes. They didn't have church buildings. The whole thing was just starting out, right? And so there would be someone that had a fairly large home. And so all the, the Christians in Corinth or parts of Corinth would come and they would gather together in a large home. And here they are gathering together in a large home. Non-Christians didn't just wander into someone else's house because they heard that there were a bunch of Christians there to find out what was going on. If there were non-Christians present in the worshiping communities in the early church, it's because they were invited in to the worshiping communities by the members of the early church. The gospel can be effectively proclaimed outside the walls of the local church, absolutely. And all of us is keeping with God how God has gifted us and opportunities that present themselves. We should take the opportunities to present the gospel to those that are listening to it or willing to hear it when we're outside the walls of the church. But the beauty of what we see in the example of Corinth, and I think maybe just across the board in the early church, is that when unbelievers encounter the gospel within the context of the worshiping community, they come face to face with the whole Christ, the body of Christ, us gathered, the word of Christ proclaimed, the table of Christ, and we come together as the covenant family to celebrate the table. So in the spirit of Missions Month, I'm asking for your partnership. We as a staff can't breathe out effectively on our own. That's the part of the church's mission that we can't do on our own. We need your help to minister the gospel effectively to unbelievers. So let me encourage you to prayerfully think about, prayerfully consider who the Lord might be putting on your heart to invite to church. Perhaps immediately someone pops into your mind, and you're like, oh, I, I know who the Lord's already got on my heart. And now I've got to figure out like, how to navigate that, like how to make that invite. And that's tricky. I'm not going to deny that that can be tricky, right? Right, but, but maybe you've never, it's never even crossed your mind that you should invite anyone to church. You just hope that non-Christians are going like, to find their own way here. They're not going to find their own way here. We're, we're long as a society, we're long past the days when there's a high level of interest in church and non-Christians are just like, you know what, I think I'm going to go to church today and just see how it goes. Right? They're not coming unless we invite them, almost certainly. Maybe you were paying attention to your email this week. We put together a, a short little video, an invitation video. That's for our website, uh, but it's floating around Facebook and Instagram as well. If you're a social media person, you can maybe make use of that video of me inviting folks uh, to come to church. You could use that video to perhaps uh, make the invitation a little bit easier. Uh, I encourage you to do that. But whether you use the video or, or whether you don't, uh, whatever the case might be, let me encourage you to pray about what God would have you do with respect to being part of the breathing out mission of the local church. All right, in closing, I want to return back to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. You're going to flip back over there. Let me make one last comment uh, from this passage. I want to note the very end of verse 20. This is the last thing that Matthew has Jesus saying. And look what he says, Jesus says. And behold, he's given them the mission. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises his presence in the context 
of his mission that he's sending them out on. I'm sending you on a mission, Jesus says, and as you go, be assured that I go with you. Sometimes I think we forget that a primary way that we connect to God is by joining him in his work. We want to connect with Christ. We long for his presence, but we aren't engaged in his mission. And we wonder why we feel such distance. Because the mission and the presence of Christ are tied together here in this promise. You guys know that Downton Abbey came out with a new movie. I don't know if some of you are Downton Abbey fans. My wife and I are Downton Abbey fans. We watched the series, and then when we knew the movie was coming out, we thought, well, let's rewatch the series to get ourselves back up to speed, and then we'll watch the movie. So we're back watching, or I think we're in season three. If you've never watched Downton Abbey, there's a spoiler coming here, I'm sorry to say. It's not a big spoiler. You don't have to leave, just maybe you know, with your ears. <laughs> but World War I starts. That's not the spoiler. Hopefully you knew that from, <laughs> from history. But... Uh, Matthew Crawley uh, and some of uh, uh, the folks from Downton Abbey, uh, some of the men, uh, get drafted into the war. Matthew uh, is uh, in charge of some regiment of some sort, and they're given the command to come up out of the trench and to charge into the enemy uh, trench and take the enemy trench. And Matthew's in charge of this group of men, and he's given them the little pep talk about the mission and what they have to do, and it's going to be tough. And, but he says, but I'm going with you. I'll be with you. I'm going with you, right? He promises his presence. Now, what would it mean, or what maybe you'd say it like this, if you feel disconnected from the person of Jesus, perhaps it's because you've stayed in the safety of the trench when he came up out of it and took the field. And so you don't feel the presence of Christ because Jesus is out doing the mission and you're still back in the safety of the trench. Perhaps today the Lord is calling you out onto the field where there's smoke and fire and danger and it can feel scary. And I know that it can be scary. But Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Like, I am with you. When we come up over the wall together and we take the field, I am with you and you are with me. He knows what you need and he knows what will lead you into flourishing. He is asking you to surrender everything to him, to trust him and to follow him. He knows what you need he knows what will lead you into flourishing. He is asking you to surrender everything to him, to trust him, and to follow him. And you might say, who are you saying that to? Are you saying that to believers? Or are you saying that to unbelievers? And the answer is yes. He knows what you need. He's asking you to trust him, to surrender to him, and to follow him. He will lead you into the path and the life of flourishing. We're going to close out in a moment singing a song that is an invitation to come to Jesus. Right? Some of you need to come to Jesus for the first time, that baptismal time, as it were. You need to come to Jesus. You need to give your life to him. You need to, to make it 
a real honest commitment with Christ. And you can do that even this morning. Others of us, we need to come to Jesus to renew our commitment to follow in the path that he is asking us to follow him. We need to renew our commitment to be obedient to him. You come to Jesus in the way that you need to come to Jesus this morning. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus down to minister to us, to draw us out of darkness when we were trapped in darkness on our own and could not find our way out. Thank you that when we have been brought out into the light, Jesus stays with us, leading us, guiding us, helping us and teaching us. God, help us to come to him with our whole lives, trusting that he knows best what is for us. Help us to give our lives to him where we pray and to give our lives to your cause. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.